you were with us last week, you know that we are, uh, last week, this week, and next week, we'll be looking at Christmas uh, through the book of, in the book of Hebrews. So we're taking a break from our Church uh, 101 series, but I do want to, uh, there is something that I would like to say today about, uh, kind of related to the Church 101 uh, series. Um, one of the first people to attend church here, uh, a very special lady, is having a birthday this morning. <laughs> Rachel DeCosimo is having a birthday. So, if you see her, wish her a happy birthday. She is a dear and sweet lady, and we're just so thankful for you and what you've meant to this church. So, happy birthday. Uh, and then I also want to just uh, give a special welcome. It's, it's always great this time of year to see some of our college students um, who are back uh, and who are here on break. It's, it's good to see you all, and uh, I hope things are going well with you, and we're, we're proud of what you are doing. So it's good to have you with us as well. If you'll turn with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 1. And, and one of the things you may be asking is, uh, why Christmas in Hebrews? And uh, one of the reasons, maybe the most important reason, is that the book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Jesus. Um, if, we, um, if we were preaching through the book of Hebrews, uh, I think I would entitle the whole sermon series, uh, and with, oh, he's not in here so good, he won't have a heart attack when I see the, say this, uh, I think I would entitle the series, Jesus is More Better. Um, because of emphasis, and also it, uh, it, it kind of fits. Um, so read the book of Hebrews with that in mind, and you'll see what we mean by that. But at Christmas, as we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, one of the things that I am desperate, um, one of the things that, that just stirs in my heart for myself and for you, is that as we look in the book of Hebrews, that we catch this vision of Jesus, that we see Him as who He is, as who, he, who God sent Him to this world um, uh, to, to represent, that we see Jesus as who He is, that we see the supremacy of Jesus, and that my hope is that as you celebrate the birth of Jesus this year, that you'll be oriented correctly, and that as you're celebrating the birth of Jesus, you'll be celebrating the birth of our Lord and of our Sovereign King. And so my goal is that as you celebrate this year, that this sermon series will increase your celebration. Now, as Gary mentioned last week, there's a lot we don't know about the book of Hebrews. We don't know who the author is. There's a lot of guesses. We don't even really know where it was written to or who the audience was. What we do know is that it was written to uh, Jewish folks, Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews. We also know, as Gary said last week, that um, the, it was written, and you can tell by the context that what was going on is that there were some folks that were leaving Christianity, leaving the way to go back into Judaism because of persecution and fear of more severe persecution than what was going on. And so what you see as you read the book of Hebrews, what you see is this unfolding message of Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels, as Gary 
preached last week. And as you go forward, Jesus is better than uh, Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than any earthly priest who ever existed. And his sacrifice is better than the old sacrifice. The covenant that he brings in is better than the old covenant. And what the author is clear in pointing out to us is not that those things in and of themselves were bad or flawed in any way, but that Jesus is better because He is the fulfillment of all those things. That Jesus coming to earth is the apex of history. It is the crowning event. It is God's plan unfolded. And it's interesting that, you know, this book was written, we think, before 70 A.D. And it's interesting that under persecution, this soon after Christ had come and died and uh, resurrected, that there was temptation. There were those in the church that were tempted to leave. And I just want to point out some of these warning passages to you that we see in chapter 2. Notice the writer, the the warning passages to the church, to the Jewish folks here. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have learned so that we do not drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God is also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Again, we see this warning. And although this audience who this letter was written to had not themselves seen Jesus, it was confirmed to them by the apostles' writings and by teachings and by the Holy Spirit. Again, in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And then in chapter 4, Therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering His rest, any of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And again in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Concerning him we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk, not solid food. And lastly, in chapter 6, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about, about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instructions about washing and laying of hands and the, resur- and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify themselves, the Son of God, 
and put him to open shame. Now, there are a lot of things in these verses we have just read that cause and stir a lot of things in the mind. And we're not getting into all that today. But what I want you to hear is that this writer is warning these folks, don't neglect what you have heard. Don't fall away from what you have heard. And he's reminding them, he's reminding them of the importance of the centrality of Jesus Christ. Because again, they were tempted to go back to Judaism because they felt like they were told that that was a more acceptable religion in their day. And you may be saying, well, Lewis, what about us? I don't know if any of you here this morning are of Jewish heritage. So my assumption is that not many of you, if any of you this morning, are tempted to turn back to Judaism. But I do think there is a word for us in here this morning, particularly particularly as we are moving to the celebration of Christmas. And I want you to hear the words that I'm using correctly. There are many, many Christians in this world who are living in extreme persecution, whose lives are threatened, who have to meet in secret. In America, in America, there is a low-level persecution for those of us who claim to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He is the way, the truth, and the light. There is a low-level persecution at this point to where you, know, you may be made fun of. It, if, you, if you are one of those people who believe that, you may be seen as uneducated. You may be seen as less than in some way. And one of the things that we're seeing, especially over the past couple years, is that there are many Bible-believing evangelicals that are leaving the faith because of this low-level persecution. And so I think it is timely, timely, that as we're marching towards celebrating the birth of our Savior, that we hear this message and that we be warned ourselves not to neglect the great salvation that we have in Jesus. Now, here's what I don't want to happen when you leave here. You know, a couple years ago, this whole scandal happened about saying Merry Christmas in stores and all this sort of thing. And I saw some Christians really get their back up and it's like, you know, you're checking out at Aldi and the person says Happy Holiday and the Christian puts them in a headlock and say Merry Christmas, say Merry Christmas, say Merry Christmas. That's not what we're about. Right? That's not what we're going towards. Where I want to orient us is in our own hearts, in our own mind, and in our own homes, are we oriented towards the supremacy of Jesus Christ above all things? So today, we're just going to look at the first three verses. And these first three verses are really a summary of the whole book. And it's a very simple summary. And the very simple summary of the whole book is that God has spoken through Jesus. Now, before we jump headlong into that part of the message, I want you to look at verse 1. And I don't want to go too fast over this. God, after He spoke. As Gary said last week, Verses 1 through 3, there is one subject and one verb, and then there's all these clauses. And the subject is God, the verb is has spoken. And one of the things that I think sometimes that we 
uh, that we neglect, that we don't think through, and I want to land heavy on us this morning, is the fact that the God of the universe, the Creator, this being that is far above anything that we could ever imagine, this God has spoken. John MacArthur, when talking about this, gives a very interesting illustration that I think is really good. He, he says that as humans, limited in time and space, it's like we're living in a box. And inside this box, many people have a feeling or have some knowledge that there's something more to life, that there's a supernatural to life. And so what happens is that they dig all around the box to try to find what that is. Christianity comes with the message that we don't poke around and claw around in this box to find out what more is there. What we believe is that the God of the universe has spoken into the box. And this is amazing Great news. Another way to look at this, um, I heard a missionary talking, uh, was given a story about talking to a Buddhist man, and the Buddhist man was telling him, you know, he believes that uh, the, the pilgrimage in life towards God is like climbing a mountain, and there are many different paths up the mountain uh, that you can get to. You can take Christianity, you can take Buddhism, you can take these different paths, and they all go to the same place. And the missionary said to this man, what if I told you that instead of working your way up and finding God, that God has come down and revealed Himself to us. That's the message that we preach and that we proclaim from the Word. God has spoken. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, and I've not read the book, but I love the title, so I can't recommend it. Some of you may recommend it, but the title of the book was He is There and He is Not Silent. Our God is not what the deist says that He is. The deist claim that God is an unmoved mover, that God set things in motion and backed off and is letting the universe run. That is not our God. Our God has spoken to us. He is loving. He wants a relationship with us. And He is a self-revealing God. Uh, and F.F. Bruce, this is a quote that I really liked by him. Had God remained silent, enshrouded in thick darkness, the plight of mankind would have been desperate indeed. But now he has spoken, his revealing, redeeming, and life-giving word. And in his light, we see light. So let's not move too quickly over the loving grace-filled action of God speaking to us and revealing Himself to us. Everything hinges on this revelation. Now, as we continue here in the first chapter in these verses of Hebrews, you're going to see that there are two movements in God's speech. The first one is this we find in verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. What we see is that long ago, God spoke in a particular way. From the very creation of time, when Adam was in the garden, God was with Adam in the garden, and then when Adam fell, God, in many ways, 
through many people in various times was speaking. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this, right? We see God speaking to Moses through a burning bush. And God revealing Himself to Moses. And when Moses says, who should I say is sending me? He says what? Tell him that I am is sending you. God speaks through the giving of the book of Leviticus. The book of Hebrews largely is, is winding its way through Leviticus and seeing how Christ fulfilled uh, the book of Leviticus. But in the book of Leviticus, we see who God is and what He requires and how God views sin and that God is making a way and atonement. We see God speaking in books like the Psalms through poetry, through this expression of creativity. And we see this wonderful, powerful God of the universe who loves man. We see God speaking in the book of Job uh, in, in many ways. God spoke to His people. For 1,800 years, God was revealing Himself to His people. And then all of a sudden, silence. Have you ever thought about that? That God is speaking, 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 and then silence. God spoke to His people during the time of the patriarchs. He spoke to His people when they wanted a king. And then when they rebelled and were in sin, He spoke to them in the exile. And then it gets to a place to where there is silence. One of the amazing things that always warms my heart as we, um, as we go through this Christmas season is thinking about Mary and Zacharias That God had been silent and then God chose to spoke to these lowly people, breaking His silence. And what was the proclamation? He's coming. He's coming. The second thing, the second movement or speech that we see here in the book of Hebrews is found in verse 2. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Notice there's some parallel. Notice there's some parallel. Long ago, long ago He spoke in this way. In these last days. And you may be saying, wait a minute, Lewis. In these last days, it's been 2,000 years since Christ was born. What we know is that we are living in the last day. The birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus was the finality That God, in that moment, punished sin. That Satan and death were defeated. And that we are living in the last days. And we will be living in the last days until Christ comes again and takes His church. Sin is defeated. There's an already and not yet. But notice the parallel again. Long ago, in these last days, He spoke in various ways to to various people. And now, in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. And notice what He says about His Son. Firstly, what we see that He says about His Son. Whom He appointed the heir of all things. Now, anybody in this culture, a Jewish person who would be reading this, would have known what was meant by heir of all things. In our day and time, you can... um, And some of you may say, Hey, Lewis, tell me about that again. Uh, 
there are ways that you can construct your will so that your children have to do certain things to get your stuff once you're dead. You know, so I've, I've heard of people saying, you know, that my son can have my stuff if he becomes a LSU fan versus an Alabama fan or whatever, right? In this culture, if you were appointed an heir, you got it all. You took what the father had. You got it all. And so when, they were, when Jesus has said that he is the heir of all things, he is the heir of the father. And so by default, what we see in this wording is that Jesus gets it all. He fulfills it all. He gets it all. Now, notice the point. Notice the point. The writer of the book of Hebrews is writing this to some Jewish folks and he's asking the question, if Jesus is the heir, if Jesus gets it all, where are you going? Are you going back to Judaism? That leads to nothing. Jesus is God's very son and he gets it all. So if you abandon Christ, you're abandoning it all. He is the sovereign king on the throne. All of the Old Testament promises are fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the reality of the shadow of the Old Testament. And all the prophecies are fulfilled in Him. And so if you neglect Christ, you're neglecting it all. There is no other conclusion. There is no other way. Not only does he tell us here that Jesus is the heir, he's also telling us here that Jesus is God. Notice, notice again in verse 2, through whom he also created the world. Now I want to go, you don't have to turn here, I will turn for the sake of time for us. But notice in, in the beginning of John's gospel, verses 1 through 4, in the beginning was the word. Interesting there, <laughs> That, that John uses this same idea of speaking. Jesus was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the light was the light of men. In the passage that Bill read for us this morning in the book of Colossians, look at verses 16 and 17, or listen to verses 16 and 17. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers of authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And you may say, Lewis, it doesn't say that Jesus is God, and I'm saying that's exactly what the text is saying. That's exactly what the text is saying, is that Jesus is God. It's what it means to be God that He is the creator of the universe, is upholding all things, and that all things are created by Him and for Him. Now, we're not going to get into an extensive uh, uh, study on what is the Trinity and that sort of thing, but this is where this idea comes into place. That what happened when Jesus came to earth is that it was God incarnate, God putting on flesh, coming into the box... Coming into the box. And we're going to get back there in a second. So again. Again. Jews. Because of pressure. 
because of persecution, the temptation to go back into Judaism, the temptation to have some, cor- some sort of um, balm on your soul that you're doing okay because you're trying to find your way to God, what this author is saying is that returning to Judaism is missing God because if you miss Christ, you miss God. He is God. Notice again in verse 3. We're going to see who, what the writer says, who he is, and what the writer says, what he does. Who he is. The first thing we see, he is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And if you have been with us a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this phrase, the radiance of the glory of God. And what this means is that the radiance of God's glory is the radiance, the word is like a light of His character. It is God showing forth who He is in the world. And what this writer is saying, inspired through the Holy Spirit, is that Jesus is that radiance. Jesus is who God is. When you see Jesus, you see the characteristics of God. It's like that reflection in the mirror. For you and I, that may not be a pretty reflection in the mirror. And and Jesus is not a reflection. It is who He is. It's not a reflector. We are to be reflectors of God's glory. When we see Jesus here and we say He is the radiance, He is actually what is radiating. Mind-blowing stuff. And He doesn't leave us there. He is the exact representation of His nature. The point, the point, what He's telling them is that when you see Jesus, you see God. Do you understand that? So that when we read in the Gospels, when we read what Jesus says, what Jesus does, how Jesus acts... We see God. Jesus tells us this plainly Himself. He says, I do nothing except what? What my Father tells me. He does His Father's will. It is who He is. And now let's look at what the writer of the book of Hebrew tells us. What Jesus, what He does, is doing. First, He upholds all things by the word of His power. This shows the dominion, the power, the majesty of who Jesus is. In other words, that if Jesus stopped doing this, everything would cease to exist. We can't even fathom this stuff. You know, and it would take lectures and a lot of time and we still wouldn't completely get it. Jesus upholds all things by the power of His Word. Not only that, not only that, notice, when He made a purification for sins. So understand this. God didn't just speak into this box. God came into this box and took care of the greatest problem that you and I have. Our sin problem. When Jesus came to this earth, Jesus came to rescue rebel sinners. And He did it with His own life. 
what a Savior that we have. Not only that, but it tells us, when he and made a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this whole imagery of him sitting down is not like, oh, whew, I can rest. No, this imagery of sitting down at the majesty on high, at the right hand, this is the imagery of a ruler, a king. In fact, one um, commentator said that in this, and I think, I think he's on to something here, one of the themes that runs throughout the Bible is this whole theme of Christ being the uh, uh, prophet, Christ, Christ being uh, king, uh, oh, and I'm forgetting the other one. Priest! Thank you. All throughout this book, you see Christ as prophet, priest, and king. In this introduction, you see Christ as prophet speaking, Christ as king, and Christ as priest sacrificing. Except he is not sacrificing other things. He sacrificed himself. The other thing that I want you to notice through these verses and it's so important that we understand this, is that the writer of the book of Hebrews, when he's laying out, you know, in these first three verses, the gospel, he doesn't just start with Jesus, you know, coming. He starts at creation. The gospel message starts at creation. Do we understand this? That God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, created, they were all there, and at After creation, man fell. God speaks. And the reason this is so important is because, again, what the writer is pointing us to is that the birth of this baby is the incarnation of God into this world, and this is the defining moment of history. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. And so the question would be, how in the world could you abandon something like this? The writer is saying to these Jewish people that are tempted to abandon the faith, where in the world would you go? This makes no sense. How did your hearing and your sight become so dull? If you abandon Christ, there's nothing left. And my fear, my fear as we look on in our day, that we see many people abandoning the faith, and my heart just hurts and weeps because I'm asking the same question. Where in the world are you going? In chapter 12, Verse 25 through 30, we get a interesting, uh, somewhat shaking, chilling message by this writer. I want to read verse 24 just for context, because in this context he's talking about Jesus, and he's also talking about the blood of Abel. He's talking about uh, Old Testament again. It says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now listen to this. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Notice. Chapter 1. 
God speaks. He's speaking through His Son. Notice here. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. And His voice shook the earth then. But now He has promised saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer God an acceptable service with reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The God of the universe has spoken. He has sent His Son, Jesus, that if we unite with Him through faith, then we cannot be shaken. And we are promised a kingdom that is being kept for us by His Word and by His power for those who persevere. So, I suspect that when the readers of this book got this book and when it was read, I suspect that there were at least three responses from the original audience. And I think these responses uh, could potentially be our responses as well. And so I want to give you these three responses and then we'll be done. First is this. I think for some, and certainly for me as I read this book, it's just amazement. That the author of this book, and we see it in his introduction, proclaims to us that this baby which we celebrate coming at Christmas is God. In Him, His work, His action, His speech, we see and hear the God of the universe reaching into this world to show us Himself, His love and His redemption, His sacrifice, His ways. He is the fulfillment of all that came before. He is the climax of creation and history. And everything hinges on God's Word and His speech to us through His Son. We should rejoice that God is not the God of the deists, the unmoved mover. God has spoken into time and space out of love to reveal Himself to us. In His Son, we see Him. To some of you who may be downcast today, who some of you who may be going through some rough things, and you may be saying this morning, I just wish God would speak to me I would tell you that God has spoken to you and He is speaking to you. And you're saying, wait a minute, Lewis. Are you believing like some of the other groups around that God can still speak like through the Church of the Latter-day Saints where recently God has spoken to the council and they have made some revisions to their belief system? Even within the Catholic Church, the Pope, when he's speaking as a Pope, is speaking on authority of God Brother and sister, the Holy Spirit does still speak to us, but when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, what is His office? What does He do? He reveals Christ to us. He opens the Word so that we see. And so if you are here and if you are downtrodden, I would say to you, 
God is speaking to you through His Spirit. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. None of us here know everything we need to know about Jesus. I know in the Sunday school class not too long ago in the uh, Church 101 or whatever, the, ah, I forget the name of that Sunday school class, they looked at the Beatitudes. And if you spent time in that class, I know because Casey was talking about how wonderful it was, I'll ask the teacher, John, do you understand everything there is to understand about the Beatitudes and the speech of Jesus? No way. It's amazing. It's amazing. God has given us His Word. We see Jesus in His Word, and we will spend our life looking to Him and the Holy Spirit um, revealing Himself, Jesus, to us. The second response The second response, I think, from the original readers, and I think maybe from some of us here, like the original audience, some of us may be tempted in this modern age to neglect this great salvation or to drift from what we know or to not think highly enough about our Savior. The commercialization of the Christmas season leads us away from our Savior. leads us away from its true meaning. The pressures of our world to fit in and get along have led to many of us to compromise and neglect the great salvation we have. And I pray that some of you today, some of you today would be encouraged. Some of you today would, that this has maybe pierced your heart and you need to repent of the unbelief, of the tendency within your soul to drift in a way that is not good, and that God this morning is calling you to repent. That's why he had the author of this book write this book, is because he was jealous that his children hear this word, and he knew when his children heard this word, they would turn back to him. He is all, Jesus is all we should want. He is all that we need. And this book mixes no words when it comes to neglecting, turning, and forsaking the word we have in Christ. Hear this. Hear this. He writes this to the original audience and it's true for us today. If you turn from him back to Judaism, that's what he's communicating to the original audience, it shows that you were never of him. And so think about this. It shows that you were never of Him. And therefore, it's impossible for you to obtain salvation because the path you're going down now to obtain salvation doesn't lead to Christ. Similarly, similarly, if we drift away, if we neglect if we look towards something else because of pressures, because of tension, because of persecution, we will not receive the rest that is portrayed to us in the book of Hebrews because we were not never of Him and now we are looking to things that don't lead to Him but away from Him to try to inherit the kingdom of God. It's empty. Judaism gets you nowhere. God has spoken through His Son. Good works, being religious, living a good life gets you nowhere. Christ has come. He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Thirdly, so first, amazement, uh, potential responses, amazement, repentance, and thirdly, salvation. It's very possible, very possible, that someone here this morning has gone their whole life not truly understanding who Jesus truly is. And, and you may even be in here this morning and realize that, you know, I've always recognized that there is a problem, that I'm a sinner and that uh, I'm not good enough and I can't achieve salvation in and of myself. But it may be that today for the first time that the Holy Spirit has done something in your life and opened your eyes to who this Jesus is and that today you may be saved. If that's you, if that's you, uh, Gary and I will be at the back. Uh, we would love to talk to you. You can talk to us today. You can shoot us an email. We'd be more than happy uh, to get with you. What you need to know is that God has spoken to you through His Son. So brothers and sisters, as we celebrate Christmas this year, and, and I think I said this last year and... God willing, for 30, 40 more years, I will continue to tell you this. This Christmas season, we have much reason to celebrate. God has spoken to us through His Son. Eat. I think last year I said, get fat, or something like that. I was reminded of that. Eat. Celebrate. Partake. This is a good thing. God wants us to enjoy in celebration the fact that God has sent His Son. Celebrate. Celebrate from a heart. Eat from a heart that is joyful and glad that God has spoken through His Son. Give. Give to others. Give to your kids with generosity. Husbands, give to your wife even if she says she doesn't want anything. Give from a heart of gladness that is full of the love that only comes from knowing that God has spoken through His Son. So, as we continue in through this Christmas season, let us not neglect this great salvation that we have. Let us not neglect, let us celebrate. We should be out celebrating the world. Our homes on Christmas Eve should be more festive than the world. Because we know that God has spoken to us through His Son and that's what we're celebrating this Christmas. Let's pray. God, we are amazed that You have spoken to us. You were not bound to speak to us. But God, out of Your mercy and Your grace and Your love, not only did You speak to us, but You made a way. You made a way that we could have a relationship with You. God, we are amazed. God, there are some here that may need to repent, that are drifting. And God, I am thankful that you call us into repentance. You don't call us into repentance to, to pile on or to um, criticize us more, but you call us into repentance because when we repent, you forgive, you restore 
So God, I pray this morning that there will be some that just experience the joy of repenting, of drifting. And God, if there is anyone here who is unbelieving, God, I pray that they would see their sin. God, I pray that they would see their need. And God, I pray this morning that they would see the great salvation that only comes through your son Jesus who died on the cross for us to pay the penalty of our sins. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.